This week on the podcast, we fix the AFL security issues, ask questions about the future of footy in Tassie, debate how much niggle is too much niggle, and reveal which professions are Australia's best tippers. You're listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Walsh here with the ESPN crew uh, for another week of the podcast. Jake Michaels, uh, welcome along. You're uh, looking very cold today. You're wearing a beanie inside. What's what's the deal with this? I knew you were going to say that. It's freezing. <laughs> I, I, I just recovered from a cold, and now I can feel it in my throat again. It's coming back. The man flu. It is. Dreaded so. man flu. Well, make sure you rug up this weekend, because I've had a look at the temperatures, and I think there's a minimum of zero in there at some point, and you'll see Wayne. Welcome. That's correct, yeah. So it's going to be a, a, a beautiful win- uh, round of winter footy. So not much rain, but... Blue skies, cold weather, nothing wrong with Might that. Might get into the negatives uh, in Ballarat. I think you probably that's will, yeah. Point, Lucky actually. they're not playing down in uh, down in Tassie this week as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And Christian Jolly from Champion Data, welcome along. Thank you. Let's Look, honestly, there was a pretty good round of footy, I've got to say. For a bye week with only six games, uh, all of the games sort of had their their moments where it was good footy. Port and Frio was games. one of the best games. Mm. And the, the Blues and the Dogs for two teams fighting out down the bottom, I was really impressed by what I saw. Yeah, I thought the... the Blues and the Dogs game was fantastic. I mean, how often do you see a team um, and the team that's sitting on the bottom of the ladder uh, go five goals down, come back, hit the front, and then go five goals down again uh, and almost come back and win it? It was it was a really, really good game. And both teams kicked 100 points, which really doesn't happen too often. The, the two most impressive wins were probably, would you say, that'd be Frio and, and Adelaide. Uh, would, you, would those two teams be contenders? Does anybody think that they can actually challenge for the flag? There seems to be a handful of teams up the top that everyone's just bookmarked for the prelims. Do we think that Frio and Adelaide could actually get in there? I don't know how high Adelaide can go. I, I see Adelaide has still got a little bit of room for improvement in them. Um, still probably tinkering with their side and trying to find their best midfield mixture. Um, you know, Bryce Gibbs is still not mm-hmm. in the team. Um, so I think they've still got a bit more upside. And I think Frio is... Performing, you know, if they finish eighth, that's an admirable finish for them. And I think I don't think they go much higher than that. But Adelaide's the one for me that could be a chance. I think over the last month uh, in our what to watch for columns, I've a couple of times I've sort of put the um, put the pen on Frio and said, "Hey, show us what you're made of." And to be fair, um, they've they've done yeah. so. And um, I think you know a couple of weeks is another derby on the way. And gee, I tell you what, that's a huge game. It's going to uh, be a looking forward. So um, yeah, Jake, any uh, further points from uh, any of the other games? Both the Blues and the uh, and the Dogs kicked 100, but there were four teams throughout that weekend, and there are only the six games that kicked 100 points. So maybe they were finally starting to see these scores Hopefully. creep up a little bit. Mm, well, that's what the AFL would have wanted. They would have looked at Saturday night's game and thought, hey, that's 6-6-6 at its very best. Yep. Uh, let's get into it. It's time for three on three. This is the segment where we spend three minutes, maybe more, uh, on three of the biggest topics in footy. Uh, and we're going to start off uh, this week where I think everyone's going to be starting off, and that's basically the fan behaviour. Uh, the AFL crackdown with security has now sort of come to a head. We had Gillan McLaughlin um, apologise to fans uh, in, in the paper yesterday, basically saying that uh, they'd gone too far despite previously having said there's not a crackdown at all. So we're getting mixed messages out of AFL House. Fans are being... Um, are being intimidated, basically. The talkback callers were flooding the airwaves uh, after the games on Friday and Saturday nights. And it's just kind of getting to a point where the AFL is obviously going to have to do something. And, and Gillian McLaughlin has spoken to the media on Tuesday. Neil, what do you make of all, all of this? It's it's a mess. Everyone, Everything involved in this is just a mess. It's It could have been so much clearer if the AFL... So the AFL initially washed their hands of this. They said, no, this is a stadium issue with their, um, their security... Um, but nothing would happen in their venues without AFL ticking it off. Like the, the, they're not going to make dramatic changes to the way that they 
use their security within games without the AFL saying, yep, we can do that or, you know, we'd prefer it if you do it this way. But I think as we've discussed on the podcast previously, if the AFL had have come out at the start of the year and said, we're going to try and crack down on aggressive language, you know, obviously we want to stop fights before they, they happen and we, it's going to be difficult to police. But if but if that, if that was known from the start of the year, I think there would be a lot more sympathy with uh, what's been happening in the last couple of weeks, which has escalated to a point where Gillen's had to apologise and he's, he's talking to the media um, a bit later as well. So I think the lack of transparency from the AFL, they've really shot themselves in the foot. This is the latest chapter in what's really been a disappointing year for the AFL. I mean, we can look at the MRO situation. We look at we can look at score review, turf issues, fixturing, uh, and now this. I mean, it's it's really we're only thirteen rounds in. You know, um, this has been one of the the poorest seasons that I can remember from from, from the AFL. Uh, and it goes back to what you just said, Neil. That they, there's no reason why they can't come out and say, yeah, look, we did. We want to crack down on this because we feel that whether we as fans or media or you know, players, anyone feels that they should be cracking down on fan behaviour or not. If the AF feels like they should and they go for it and they say, yes, we're doing this, then people will probably accept it. But they're just, they're, we're getting mixed messages. And I think people just can't quite get their head around what's going on here. I, th- I think people aren't concerned about security. Obviously, security is a good thing and people want to feel safe at the footy. But there's a point where prowling the aisles... Yeah, that's that's not on. No, no. And and, and you saw it on the weekend when the uh, the Blues and Dogs game finished. There was a fight erupting in the stands. And from all accounts, and there were multiple on, on the airwaves later that night, there was no security nearby because they were all Packed prowling around. And, and well, well, maybe they had, but they were all sort of, you know, looking for people yelling out a couple of bad words, perhaps. I mean, I think the priorities uh, were out of whack with the AFL and, and the stadium security. Uh, and instead of having more security presence they just need to be smarter about how they approach security perhaps yeah and i'm all for having them there i mean as you say like make them visible but don't have them in the face and staring down any potential person in the stands i think that's your analogy jake in the office earlier this morning your analogy was if you're just doing something that's completely illegal and natural but you've got a lot of people staring you in the face if you're going down doing your your you're at Coles doing your your shop weekly shopping run, and you've got a security guard following you down the aisles. Imagine how intimidated and how nervous you'd feel. You'd feel like you've done something wrong. I mean, have the security there. You have to have security. There. Absolutely. It's a professional sport. You're getting fifty to hundred thousand people at, at a lot of games at the MCG. You need to have security there to sort out matters and issues. But to have them walking around and and almost looking for people to throw out, I think that's a really bad look. And and you don't see that in a lot of other sports. What did we make of the the new bibs with behavioural awareness officers on it? I mean, well, I tell you, what, we I jumped w- the shark I with that be, or what? I w- you take a brave person to walk around wearing one of them, I reckon. And and I feel I feel sorry for them because they're the faces of this issue, and they're probably getting paid pretty pretty poor wages. They're probably not that educated on uh, the culture of football and what needs to be done um, and crowd management. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, if they can get re-educated to understand the difference between threatening behaviour and just hard barracking, I think that would be a, a massive, massive tick. The amazing bit of vision for me was the security guard running onto the field Shocking. while two players were wrestling. I mean, that for a coincidence, on the same weekend we've introduced new behaviour officers, it was the same thing, it was like, is this guy new? Has he done a game before? Have we, have we rolled out too many security officers in one weekend? It just seems like too much of a coincidence for that. That's the first time I've ever seen that I've happen. I've never seen that. Uh, guard. Oh, I did, well, there was one JLT game a couple of years back uh, up in uh, Queensland somewhere, and there was a security guard on the fence. But the, 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 the tussle came to him, so he kind of was there and just put his arms out and sort of <laughs> tried to separate. And he, I think he realised he did the wrong thing, but this bloke was ready to run on the ground and start... And uh, the umpire almost these... had to shepherd him. He was, yeah. The umpire himself was trying to separate the players or warning them not to get too physical. 
and then he had to try and turn to the security guard that was encroaching and say, hey, we've, I've got this. You, you can stay on your side and of the... S- seeing that on this weekend after, obviously, that was, you know, the, uh, the Sunday game. So Friday night, we'd already seen Essendon Hawthorne Carlton Bulldogs was the same. We'd seen all the stadium, uh, the security walking through the venue up and down the aisles. And to see that piece of vision, it's like, it's just... It's too much of a coincidence to have Friday, it on Saturday one, one and weekend. Sunday. Sums, it really sums up how silly the whole sort of niggle and getting into a, a fight with someone on the ground is. I mean, you don't see it in, <laughs> in any other sport. And if someone coming in is, you know, to probably hasn't watched a lot of football, is just stunned at the fact that this is going on and they, they're getting away with it. So Gil did speak uh, to the media on Tuesday. Uh, here's what he had to say. I'm apologising for the people who are going along to the football to have a day out who feel they haven't been able to do that. They feel the security is some way impinging on them. They feel that actually they're not able to be themselves when they're just enjoying a game of the football. And that is the feedback we've had. We've got to work together with all of the subcontractors, the venues and, and police. While safety's been a huge priority, there are parts of our supporter base that don't feel that they actually can enjoy themselves in the same way. And we're listening to that. There's been no edict, no discussions about cracking down on fan behaviour with venues. That was League CEO Gil McLaughlin. Uh, let us know what you think about what he said at Footy Tips on Twitter. Um, look, yeah, as you said, Jake, it's not been a great uh, few weeks or year for the AFL, and hopefully we can improve from here. No, stay tuned. Story coming soon on uh, ESPN.com.au. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to move on. Uh, North, speaking of that game down at Blunston. Uh, North was playing GWS there on Sunday, uh, and only 7,832 people turned up to watch. Christian, does that include you, the security guards? Does that include <laughs> the security guards? That's a good point. Christian, do you happen to know where that ranks in terms of Tassie matches all time? Yeah, so I've looked at, um, yeah, correct, all time. So there's three venues that they played down in Tasmania. North Hobart, uh, they played, Fitzroy played down there. Uh, I think the first game down there was in the 50s, and they played there uh, a couple of games in the 90s. Uh, obviously Launceston, um, where the Hawks play, and uh, Blundstone Arena, where the Norths play. So we've had 95 games at that at those three venues across the uh, AFL-VFL history, and that is the lowest crowd uh, at a Tasmanian game, and only the fifth time under 10,000. Neil, you're a Tasmanian. Proud Tasmanian. Proud Tasmanian. Yep. <laughs> is North and Hawthorne in Tassie viable? Well, I mean... I- the crowd number was poor from the weekend, and I get frustrated when people see that as a, a, a cross that Tasmania couldn't support its own team. We might get into that a bit later, but to your question, yeah, they, they are viable because they're, they've both they both earned so much money um, from the state government. It's they they're both growing their membership bases. Like if you go up to Launceston now, every three out of every four um, person wearing any AFL um, merchandise is a Hawthorne fan and that wasn't the case 20 years ago so they're, they're doing really well in growing their supporter base um, and they both rarely lose down there I know North lost to the Giants on the weekend but I, I think they're viable that, yes but I think there is a groundswell of movement away from that I think that they're getting a little bit of an unfair advantage from the Tasmanian government and I think there's a groundswell of support for a standalone Tasmanian team so do you think these lower crowds are not that people don't have interest in footy because I don't think that would be the case is this more that the fans are fed up of having to support Victorian teams perhaps I think so they're getting those two teams forced on them and it's wonderful if you're a North fan or if you're growing you've got a couple of young kids that haven't chosen a team yet and they might they get to go and watch their teams play you know four times a year Um, but it's certainly not a lack of of desire to to get involved with footy from because it's um, Tasmania's as footy mad as, as Victoria or, or South Australia or Western Australia. It's footy footy is the number one. It's a king down there. So um, uh, the fact that it's GWS, they wouldn't have many casual supporters down in Tasmania. They wouldn't have many travelling supporters as well. 
Um, and, you know, maybe it's not a game that you'd be penciling in as a North fan that I've got to go to the GWS game in the middle of winter. So it's just maybe a, a combination of factors for that. But I think if they had a standalone team and representing the state, I think that they'd, they'd, they'd pack out those boutique stadiums pretty much every game. Well, I think there's, what, eight or nine games down there per year now? Eight, eight AFL games a year. There's yep. eight. So it's like you only need, you know, two or three more and you've, you've, they're all your home games for a year. So yeah. if the AFL believes it's viable to play eight games there a year split between two clubs, then why not play yeah. 10 or 11 and actually have one club playing them? Because that's the thing. If you've got, you know, it's harder to support a team when you've got two teams coming down. But if mm-hmm. you've got one that unites the whole uh, state... Mm-hmm then I feel like that's going to have more interest, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think for it to work, for it to ever work, and it's something that I've, I've you know, every footy fan that's um, from Tasmania have has always had these discussions with their mates and colleagues and whatnot. How how would it happen? What would happen? So it would have, there, there is a, a little bit of a divide between North and South in Tasmania. I think it's a bit overblown historically. It's, it's getting a little bit more of a um, whole state feel now. But you would have to base it in either Hobart or Launceston mm-hmm. and then split the games maybe if you've got 11 home games, five and six either way, depending on which, which stadium it's going to be housed at. Um, but the interesting thing for me is so the, the, the Kangaroos and Hawks deal with the state government to play games in Tassie that ends in at the end of 2021. Both of those, both both really? of those deals do, and there's a new broadcast agreement um, for end of 2023. So I'm wondering whether, I mean, I think the broadcasters would love an extra game if you could, oh, you know, if the, AFL looks no. at, if, if the AFL looks at bringing in two new teams, um, that that's one extra game on TV. Don't uh, know about that. You don't two, know about that. Uh, I'm I'm all for more teams if if there's room for them or need, but. The I think you, I think deep enough. Yeah, well, not. I think the talent pool might be there, but I think you've got to sort out the the teams you've got. Okay, I mean, so look, you've got to look at obviously Gold Coast is the one that stands out right now. I mean, no one wants to play at Gold Coast. No one wants to stay there. I mean, it's that's a real dire situation. I don't think. I think it's a bad look if the AFL were like, all right, we're starting a Tasmania team. You know, we're going to put all our eggs in this basket now and just leave Gold, Gold Coast rot up there. I I agree with Jake, but I also sort of want to talk about the Gold Coast thing. It, it seems like that's afflicted all sports it's not just an AFL thing I feel like Gold Coast is so hard hard to get a foothold so again yeah you you want them to try to fix that but I don't know if Gold Coast I don't know what you know how uh, prominent Gold Coast is going to be as a sporting you know city why not relocate Gold Coast down there I think the the reason Jake would be the AFL so stubborn and they've put it they've chosen that for a reason for growth and I think they're so stubborn and then they they admitted that it was going to be a multi-generational build I don't think that they'll just turn their back after 15 years and from from all indications um like auskick numbers are quite strong in southeast queensland and, and in that region so it might be as you say a generational thing mm. can i obviously i'm very passionate about this um being a, a tasmanian footy fan the three victorians in the room how, how do you feel like it's something that needs to be done or do you think it's not even really that big a deal i'd love to see it but as i said i, I just worry that it's a bad look if um because i think a tasmanian team would be great and i reckon you get great support um, and obviously a lot of ex-players from Tassie like um, Nick Rewald and, and, and both the Rewald boys they're, they're keen on that sort of thing to happen but I just wonder whether it's a bad look if yeah if you've got a team like Gold Coast really struggling I know Brisbane's going quite well now but it's been the same story for years where where players um, get drafted there and then they just want to leave after two or three years mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, I mean, I wrote a, an essay in Year Ten saying that Tasmania should have an AFL team, so I've been sort of strong on it for a few years. But uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago, <laughs> a couple of years back now, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, look, I'm, I think it's um, you know you've got to look after the heartlands. Where can we read look this after essay? the heartlands? No, no, it's uh, not for public public consumption. Um, <laughs> You'll have to bring it in. I want to. I want to see. Um, no, I think you've got to look after the heartlands and um, the AFL. The last venture elsewhere was not to the heartlands, mm-hmm. and I think that put a lot of people offside. And um, I don't know how they're going to go about it because it's a challenge whether you go expansion, whether you go relocation, whether you go merger mm-hmm. to make sure there's 18 teams or if you go 19. I mean, the questions are endless, but uh, yeah, there something probably of, needs to be done. Yeah, and it's going to be fascinating. I think the AFL's language has softened in the last year. So it's given me, as a Tasmanian footy fan, a little bit of hope. I think previously Gill and, and the executive have been, no, it's not going to happen. We're really concentrating on Gold Coast and, and GWS, etc. But it seems like there's, there's been a little bit of, oh, okay, there, there might be some sort of chance and it's something that we might put on the agenda. So, fingers crossed. Yeah, see, I'm probably a little bit different. I feel I, I would love to see a Tassie team, but I feel like we might, may have missed the boat and we uh, sort of do have to concentrate on Gold Coast, GWS, you know, probably, yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry for the pun, yeah, but probably, you know, it's probably, for me, it's probably another 20 or 25 years away before you oh. start to look for too many teams. That's just a personal opinion. I think, but, I, that, that's, that's but again, fair. going back, yeah. I would definitely say I would have preferred a Tasmanian team than a Gold Coast team, and I was quite disappointed that Gold Coast got a team. Yeah. But now I think you just got to let it settle, let the landscape sort of, yeah, settle. All right, well, uh, we'll keep an eye on that uh, as the year continues and some more games are played down in Tasmania. Hopefully in front of bigger crowds. Hopefully. Hey, Ben Stratton caused a few waves on Friday night with uh, his continued use of pinching. Uh, Jake, I know you're going to be quite strong on on this uh, later on, but pinching, and he's been sent to the tribunal, but where does this sit in the scheme of on-field misdemeanours? I mean, is it suspension worthy, just pinching someone's arm? I mean, Repeatedly. Repeatedly. repeatedly, I think that's the key point. I think so. It if is. he if he does it once, it's it's not it's not worthy of of a, of a citation. If he does it once, I mean it's probably not picked up, and you know, Fantasia's arms probably not black by the end of the night. I mean, it's this is something that has clearly, you know, it's not the first time that Stratton's done it from all accounts. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago we saw him trying to do a similar thing with Charlie Cameron in the Brisbane game. Yep. So. I think it's a really poor look, and I, look, I don't think I'm the only person saying this, especially as a captain. I mean, it's just a really... It's one of those things, it's a grey kind of error because it's not in the rule book. Um, so an umpire can't really pay a free kick, and you can't, you know, you get suspended. Where does it kind of fall? That's, that's why I have it as one of the biggest misdemeanors because it's an unspoken rule. We don't we don't even need to put it in the rule book. Uh, pulling yeah. hair, pinching... I think spitting Spinning. might be in the rule book now, though. Oh, I think possibly. From, but again, that's probably another one. It's it like, have to be in it's, the rule book. It's so obvious yeah. that we don't even put in the rule book yeah. that if you go and do it, yeah. you're clearly you know, breaking the rule. So that's why I actually see it as a, a very poor misdemeanor and you know, a very bad look because we don't even have a rule against it. We just mm. expect players not to do that. Yeah, it's one of those strange ones where it doesn't, it's not going to really cause you serious injury. Like the, the other incident from the, the Hawks-Bombers game was Stratton stomping on um, an opponent's foot. Arguably worse, would you oh, say? Oh, way worse. Well, that's that's that can, as you say, that foot. can cause uh, serious injury. It yeah, could, yeah. so true. one of just one of those strange things where it's not going to cause serious injury, but it, it shouldn't be in the game at all. So, um, yeah, I, I hope the tribunal go pretty hard. Yeah, on if him. if the tribunal and the AFL don't stamp this out tonight, this could be disastrous because we we don't want to get to the point three, four, five weeks down the track where every second defender is, is trying to use this tactic. They've got to stamp this out now, and, and he, sh- he should get a couple of weeks for this. So, so just to draw the line and move on, a couple of weeks. I think so. I think you should get two weeks for for that, and probably a week for for the uh, for the stomp. I, I'd give him three so weeks. So you give off. more for the pinching than the stomp. I think so. That's interesting, Neil. I, I'm not sure about. Hopefully, it's a week at least for both. But I, I'd just be embarrassed if that was my football club captain. 
Well, I'd be embarrassed if it was just a, the the twenty second player selected doing that, just to, trying to get an edge on an opponent. But um, I'd be I'd be enormously embarrassed if that was the the player representing the club. So where does it sit in the scheme of things? Are we what about hair pulling? What do we think of hair pulling? Joe? Well, I don't like seeing. I, you know, a lot of people might like, might not like my view, but I don't like seeing any kind of this niggle. I don't like when the game hasn't even started yet and players are already bashing into each other. Just play the game. You never see the really really good players doing this sort of stuff. And isn't it funny? It seems to be the only sport where it's acceptable. Yeah. Like you don't see any other sport off the top of my head where you can actually sort of jam your elbow into someone's guts and you know running. It, it, it's part it's of the appeal for some people, but it's it's certainly weird. not for me. As I said, I, you don't see the the champion players starting it they they may retaliate but they just get on and play the game because they know that they're good like I, I i don't know i just i don't like seeing it one of my favorites from the junior days was um sometimes if i needed to tie my shoelace up uh if i, if I was at center half back or, or center half forward or, whatever, back, or on, on the bench <laughs> on the bench <laughs> didn't go to the bench that much actually i couldn't be oh, running that far <laughs> um no no i used to while i was tying my own shoe up at lace up i'd just try and untie the shoe of the player next to me i mean <laughs> is that acceptable where, where do we draw the line well i mean yeah, it's, not it's probably not sanctionable. It's, that, that's kind of humorous. It's kind of like a humorous sledge as opposed to a abusive sledge. I don't mind that one. What I mean, did you say before, Neil, about people, I someone's shoe coming off and throwing it Yeah, the- I've seen a couple of times in my junior days, and I'm sure I've seen it at the yeah. top level, people losing their shoe and then an opponent throwing it as far away <laughs> as they I'm could. I'm sure there was a 50-metre penalty or a free kick made not. against the player three or four years ago, and I, I can't remember. remember off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm sure, sure I've seen, seen it. it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's that's probably more of a, a sort of naughty schoolboy um, slap across the wrist rather than something that's actually should be not in part of the game. Yeah, pinching. I mean, like you said, in isolation, yeah. But if you're repeatedly doing it and causing bruises, maybe. I mean, you just see the back of his arm after it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it hurt. Close. Come on, yeah. No. Pinch your back of your arm right now. It's actually really hurt. No, I'm right. Ah, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. How about stat? With Champion Data. Hey, go back a decade or so, even longer if you like. Apart from a few notable uh, stars, coaches have been sort of reluctant to use the winger as a really damaging position, I think. And then you sort of see in more recent years that uh, the uh, approach to the winger has changed a fair bit. And Christian, I know you've got some great insights into the, the wing position and how players are being used sort of in more modern times compared to 10, 15, 20 years ago. Correct. So we've always, um, you know, we love to rate players in their position. So you've got the three main position or four main positions on a field, defender, forward, ruckman, midfielder. They're your traditional positions are the positions we sort of started with in the early 2000s. Um, we've actually added two new positions in the last seven or eight years. Mid-forwards came in probably about 2009, 2010, so they were quite early. To be a mid-forward, you've got to play at least 35% of your time as a forward or 35% of your time as a midfielder. So those would be like your Dustin Martins, Paddy Dangerfields. Correct, yeah. Yep, a lot of those type of players. Michael Walters is probably one of the sort of leading ones at the moment. Um, And then probably two or three years after that, we started to split up the midfielders to wingers. So again, going back to your sort of um, opener there, Probably you probably go back thirty years ago, and every team played with two wingers. It was very traditional: two back pockets, a full back. You know the way your team looked in a newspaper was probably the way they lined up on the field. Um, sort of early two thousands, mid two thousands, it it sort of changed. People were starting to play with eight forwards or um, three, you know, off the back of the square instead of one on the side. So you sort of lost that niche position of a wingman. Mm. Some teams would be picking six midfielders and just chucking the overflows on the wings, one at half forward and the rest in the centre bounce. Um, but yeah, so I think the wingman is coming back in the last five or six years, and there's some numbers that sort of point to that. So going back to 2014, we had three players in the competition that were spent more than 70% of their time as a wingman. Just so three? Across the whole competition. So that was Marty Clark at Collingwood, Jack Trengove while he was at name. Melbourne, <laughs> and Brandon Ellis at Richmond. 
Right. Uh, by 2015, this was up to 11 players. 2016, 26 players. And this is the interesting one for me. So 2016, the Bulldogs won a premiership with a bunch of mid-forwards. They basically had one or two permanent midfielders. Um, they might have had one winger off the top of my head and about seven or eight midfields. So uh, Libba, Mitch Wallace, Bonson Pally, Josh Dunkley, they're all almost 50-50 midfield forward split. So in uh, 2017, the wingers, I think, were the ones that probably, the, again, the coaches were experimenting with the most. We dropped back down to only 13 players with a 70, 70% time spent on wing. So again, the, the number sort of half from 2016. I think that was a little bit of, yeah, trying to play copycats, trying to sort of go, all right, we'll play with either center bounce midfielders or forwards, and again, mm. we'll just put the extra ones on the wing. Um, last year, in 2008, we had 31 players spend 70% of their time on the wing, and this year it's up to 33 players. So again, going backtracking, 2014, we're at three. This year, we're at 33. So we're starting to see a lot more teams sort of play those two traditional wingers. So if you one on each take side. the 18 clubs and a wing each, I mean, 36, so 33 is not far off. Correct. Just two teams, permanent wingers, yeah. really. And that's just, yeah, looking at 70% of the time. So, um, so yeah, sort of on top of that, just sort of... Ex- explaining what a winger does differently to a centre bounce midfielder. So obviously they're not in at the centre bounces. Um, but yeah, a wingman's usually going to be more outside, so more of an uncontested possession ball winner. Usually your better kicks are going to be on the wing, and they're usually going to be um, pretty good at distance covered and, and, and the running sort of side of things. So the good sprinters, you think of Andrew Gaff, Lockie Whitfield, some of them have um, some awesome GPS numbers, and they're sort of your, your main wingers. So just looking at some of the stats for wingers this year, Mitch Robinson we classify as a winger. Hmm. Uh, he's actually the average the most tackles of any wingman, which is uh, 5.1 per game. That would actually, if we bas- put him in the basket with all other midfielders, that would rate him 37th of midfielders and put him in this sort of average category. Doesn't make, so it's one of those things, make sense because he's quite a contested, you'd think he's more correct, of a contested, yeah. hard at it sort of midfielder. But if he's spending more time on the wing, I guess it doesn't surprise that he's also putting in more hard yards in terms of tackles. Correct. And you probably get less opportunity to tackle if you are on the wing compared to the stoppages because a lot more tackles are happening pre-clearance mm. rather than out in general play. So again, sort of looking at Mitch Robinson, is he a good tackler? If you looked at him compared to all midfielders, he'd come up as average and you say he's middle of the table. Now that we got his new, new position as of six, seven years ago, he's a winger and he's now a number one tackler for his position. So it sort of gives those guys an extra, not a chop out, but the guys that are playing on wing, instead of comparing them to all the other guys that are sort of doing different roles and are more in the guts and things like that, we're sort of allowing to have more, again, so this allows us to have more elite tacklers across the competition instead of having just the five-gun midfielders like Libba, um, I think, you know, Clayton Oliver, and that might be up there for tackles. We've actually got the wingers that might only average half as many tackles, but they're mm. still elite for the type of role they play. I really like that for the fact that it's defining the role that these players are doing and you're comparing apples with apples so you're comparing Mitch Robinson for example against all the other wingers who are doing the same job as him yeah Yeah. rather than just putting him into the middle of the table so again looking at clearances Andrew Gaff leads the wingers with four clearances per game that would rate him 61st of all midfielders (laughs) so again you you look at that and you say he's probably below average he's not a good clearance player but when you say hang on but he's actually playing as a wingman you go well he is actually good at getting into the clearances so do you judge that as then being like elite for a winger correct so elite means you're in the top 10 10% for your position so this year most stats have four or five elite wingmen so if you're in the top four or five wingmen you're you're rated elite this year for average but if they were grouped in just a midfield group as they would have been six to seven years ago they'd just be as you say correct most of them them around average to below average when compared to all other midfielders but again that's based on opportunity and type of role they're playing. So again, looking at the elite wingers this year, uh, Ricky Henderson's our number one winger, and he's sort of having a um, a, great a, year. Yeah, a mm. career best season again at 30, 31 years old. Uh, second is Hugh McCluggage, third Mitch Duncan, and fourth still side bottom. So they're sort of our four elite wingers that have played 
you know, more than four or five games this year. So the, the names sort of, you know, sort of stack up to the guys that you're looking at. I've actually gone back and looked at the top winger by season, again, sort of starting at 14. So not too many surprises the first three years. Rory Sloan we had as a wingman in 2014. He's probably more centre-bounce now. Um, top wingman in 2015, Stephen Hill at Frio. 2016, Dane Zorko. 2017, Jack Sinclair at St Kilda. 2018, mm. Sam Lloyd. So those two Sam last Lloyd. names sort of raise a few eyebrows, yeah. and they and they do for us in the office too. I, I was sort of saying to you guys pre-pod, um, we're, we're football heads too and stat heads. So yeah. we'll look at the numbers, but sometimes it doesn't stack up with what we're seeing on the football field as well. And we'll dig into either the numbers to sort of realise, all right, the numbers are, are showing us something that we're all missing, or the numbers are sorry, probably, you know, throw them out because they're not measuring the right thing because they clearly don't stack up with the eye. So looking at uh, Jack Sinclair, we sort of went, well, what's wrong with the numbers? Surely no one in the office looks at Jack Sinclair as being an elite player. Yeah, yep. we've got him number one for his position. Um, so again, it wasn't until we say, sort of dug into the numbers that we actually gave a tick to the computer and went, well done, computer. You saw something no one else saw with Jack Sinclair. So in that year, he was the he had the highest contested possession rate of wing, any wingman. So he was winning his own ball for the role he was playing. So I think his contested possession rate would have still rated average compared yep. to every other midfielder. But I guess when you're playing with 70% or more Correct, time but when you're wing, playing outside on the wing, um, yeah, he was number one for that. He had the second most pressure points for a wingman, so he's chasing defensively, and he was third for score assists for a wingman. So there's no other wingman that rated top three in all those three stats. Winning the ball, chasing the opposition, and hitting it on the scoreboard. So could you also break down wingmen? You look at some of wingmen in the AFL at the moment, you could say that some are more attacking-minded and some are more defensive-minded. Is the next step that we're going to start looking at midfielders in that sort of bracket like more of a defensive midfielder or an attacking midfielder definitely a- so yeah we've um as i said we've got mid forwards the one that we've flagged in the office to start looking at is mid defenders so there's a lot of guys that are sort of um you know playing shane edwards is probably a good one 20 30 off uh halfback flank but then comes into a center bounce for richmond so uh wingers are the same you sort of got your offensive wingman and your defensive wingman um we haven't got everybody categorized yet but sort of starting to look into that um and again with the new 666 rule um, and some of the data we've been able to collect at centre bounces, it makes it more consistent this year. Whereas last year, you sort of had eight defenders, but one of those defenders yeah. would roll up to wing, and it was very hard to sort of you know track where everyone was going at all minutes of the play. It's getting quite easier with the six six six. But yeah, sort of looking at wingers um, based on where they win the ball. So what I call defensive half wingers, Chris Maston at West Coast has won seventy percent of his disposals in the defensive half. Uh, surprising for me is the second highest percentage of wingmen is Andrew Gaff. Two so again, years. I think West Coast are probably playing with two defensive wingen, wingmen That's rather than having one mm. roll forward. Just looking at those two numbers, I mean, Maston and Gaff have probably played the majority of their games this season. Um, and Gaff was at 68% behind uh, centre. Uh, the other guys below them are, again, probably not big names, but guys that are sort of, you, you sort of do watch them and they seem to be in defence. Matt Guelphie, Jordan Clark, and Brandon Ellis, yep. sort of de- defensive, defensive half-wingers. Yeah. Forward half-wingers, um, Oscar Baker's at the top with 69%. He's only played four games, but I watch him for Melbourne, and he looks like a live wire that could sort of... And um, that's in a position that we, we're really... Oh, correct. We've been the Melbourne footy club is very deficient in as well, yeah, that, that, that outside run. Yeah, the outside run and that drive into the forward 50, which you might, be able to, yeah, you might be able to provide. Second on the list is Tom Scully, so playing that attacking um, wingman role for Hawthorne. Xavier Dersma for Port Melbourne. Harry Morrison, another Hawthorne player. Port Melbourne. Uh, sorry, yeah, Port Adelaide. <laughs> Mid-season draft. Yeah, <laughs> That's a good one. Harry Morrison and Will Hayes at the Bulldogs. So again, all those guys are sort of, yeah, probably going to be hitting the scoreboard a little bit more, um, delivering an inside 50, whereas, yeah, your Maston, Andrew, Gauff, Andrew Gaff and Guelphie are going to be sort of, yeah, helping the defenders out. Interesting. i tell you what, I'm still stunned about uh, Jack Sinclair. Tell you what, mm. he'd pay good money for those numbers in negotiating his oh, next wouldn't contract. wouldn't he ever? Yeah. He might get you guys into, uh, into the boardroom <laughs> next time when he's trying yeah, to get a new yeah. contract. That is fascinating. Hey, uh, we do have to move on, though. 
I've had a gutful. Jake, uh, we sort of know what you are going to rant about because we did foreshadow it a bit earlier, but we're not quite sure about how hard you're going to go. So I'm very interested in to see what you've had a gutful of this week. Hawthorne. Honestly, I think this has been the worst week Hawthorne's had in a long, long time. And I'm actually projecting forward, and I think Hawthorne is, in a, is arguably in its lowest point of a decade. And I'll explain a little bit more later. But obviously, we just spoke about Ben Stratton and, and the disgraceful game he had as a captain of that football club. That was just not on. We spoke about the pinching. We spoke about the flipping the bird off to the Bombers fans, uh, stomping on McKernan. Then you've got Alastair Clarkson coming out and almost defending it and sort of brushing it aside as if it's not a big deal. You got the Jeff Kennett nonsense. You got Isaac Smith who kind of came out and didn't really, didn't really sort of st- sort of put down a marker and say, no, we can't be doing this as a football club and as players. It's been a really poor week, and then top it off, they lost to the Bombers in a, in a game that they the scoreboard flattered them, and they were never really in. But as I said, I'm looking forward with Hawthorne, and I and I and I was at the game on Friday night, and I thought, gee, this is really worrying for the Hawks. I mean, I, I'm looking at the players they've got, and I just don't see much improvement. We we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the Carlton's list and the and uh, North, North Melbourne's list. list, and I tell you what. I don't think it's a stretch to say that looking forward three years, Hawthorne probably has the worst list right now. That's a big call. I mean, they are quite an old group of players, you'd think. Well, they are. So according to Champion Data, Christian's provided me with these nice stats. So they're top seven players this year. McAvoy, Henderson, Sicily, Roughhead, Warple, Gunston, and Bruce. So five of those seven players are over 27. You know, you've got Henderson and Roughhead in their 30s. McAvoy, you know, he's he's only a month away from 30. I mean... This is really alarming. And then you've got players like Puapolo and Smith, who might, might be gone. Burgoyne, surely in his last year. Frawley. Scully, who's come across and, and hasn't really provided as much as everyone kind of thought. Obviously, they've got Tom Mitchell out, but, but O'Meara hasn't quite really, you know, he, he struggled a bit when, when uh, opposition sides have put some time and effort into him. It's really worrying for Hawthorne. So you reckon they've got the worst list in the AFL? If you, if you, not right now, obviously okay. not. You, you can't go past Carlton or Gold Coast in terms of the worst I'd rather list right Carlton's now. List. But I'm talking about looking ahead three, three or four years just to sort of see where they're going to be. I mean, another, another amazing study is they've got 19 players on their list under 23 years of age. Only three of them have a positive rating in terms of champion data's rankings for their age and position. Yeah, so comparing, so as using Blake Hardwick as an example, I think he was at plus nineteen percent. So he's performing nineteen percent better than a defender at the same age would have in previous years. So they've only got three players in the positive. For those yeah, Hardwick, stats. Scrimshaw, and uh, Warple. So mm, yeah. obviously, you know, they're three positives. But I mean, what about the other sixteen players? I mean, it's really concerning. And I tell you what, I had a quick look at Hawthorne's fixture for the rest of the year. They got Sydney, West Coast, Collingwood, Fremantle, who are playing well. Geelong, mm. top of the table. Brisbane, who they can't beat. North Melbourne, who are now playing well. The Giants, Gold Coast, and West Coast again. I don't think it's crazy to say that Hawthorne only win one more game this year. I reckon they'll be favourites against uh, Gold Coast, and they might win one more. They might win two for the rest of the year. So we've got them. Yeah, that's that's rated as the second hardest draw for the run home. Only Bulldogs have got a harder draw. So just sort of summarising it, Hawks, yeah, three, three of the top four teams they play and four of the five to eight ranked teams they play in the next, you know, 11 or that 12 weeks. Gold Coast games at Marvel Stadium too. We were talking about the North Melbourne crowd uh, down in Tasmania. They might only draw about seven or 8,000 to Marvel Stadium for the Gold Coast game. And then wouldn't Jeff Kennett say that there's a <laughs> AFL conspiracy, conspiracy against them to, to schedule them in, in bad spots? And here's one more, just, just uh, another kind of quirky one, which I, I actually think is quite interesting though. 
They haven't scored 100 points this year, Hawthorne, in any game that they've played. The last time they've gone half a season, or over half a season without doing that, was 1966. So they've obviously dropped Roughhead out of that side, and he's their most experienced forward, kicked the most goals of anyone in that team. They've dropped him out of the side. But what I can't understand is, why are they not? Why did Mitch Lewis not play on the weekend? You know, yeah, they're, well, they're, they need a key forward. They're, they they're, they're like for like, and yeah. it's like they want to groom um, Mitch Lewis as their next tall key forward. Why is he not playing? You can't rely on Gunson and Bruce to kick you 10 goals every game. Well, they moved Sicily forward, didn't they, against the Bombers? Yeah, and it defender, didn't work. And yeah. he didn't get a touch and then went back into his natural position and played really well. And he's one of the best defenders going around. Yeah. You know, so why, you know, it's really concerning. I'm, I'm worried about Hawthorne. And the three votes goes to... Uh, from the, the negatives uh, and, and Hawthorne, and we're going to look at the positives now. And I tell you what, Jake, and I said this a bit earlier, but Frio have become an extremely watchable football team this year. And I tell you what... You look surprised. Well, I mean, Ross Lyon, throughout his time in, as an AFL head coach, he's had a couple of knocks on him. One, one is that he can't develop a list and, and, and start a rebuild. And the second is that he can't coach an attractive brand of footy. And I tell you what, halfway through 2019, I think it's almost fair to say that he can tick both of those off. And Frio, tell you what, if they make finals, I'm, I'm on the Frio bandwagon because they are a good team to watch when they're up and going. I reckon for the first time... In oh, as long as I can remember, you'd, you'd actually enjoy going to watch Freo play a game of footy. Like if they played a final here against a team that, you know, a neutral game, you'd actually be really keen to watch them play because just of the, the quality of their individuals. They're playing a, a lot more attacking this year, I think, as well. It, it just seems like they're um, happy to take the game on a bit more and, and take riskier kicks. I don't, I'm not sure. Christian, do you have anything? <clears> you can... It is quite interesting. I mean, the numbers are sort of going into the, into the positive a little bit. One of the couple of numbers that they are sort of um, doing well this year is they're kick longs from a set position so that's when you really you take a mark or a free kick and you really have to think about alright what am I supposed to do next um, in, kicking in general play you probably have less time to make a decision um, but set kicking is sort of you know you're usually going to follow team rules for that so four years ago they ranked 17th for kicking long from a set kick 14th uh, three years ago 7th last year and 1st this year mm-hmm. so that is that okay. is a definite, a definite coaching thing where if you take a mark or a, you know a, get a free kick in a set kick Get the ball moving fast instead Putting of going sideways, under pressure, mate. sideways and or backwards. I bet you that's because they've now got the building blocks in place up forward in, yeah, in Hogan, Hogan and Lobb and, and Taberner yeah. had a good start of the year. Yep, that they can that actually afford to do that. And what's ahead of the ball. So that's helping them um, play the ball in their forward half. So again, time in forward half. They've gone from 14th, 16th, 16th, up until 8th this year. So not, not world beaters this year, but again, You're back into the top there. half where they should be. Very quickly, are they the best team in Perth? Oh, jeez. Oh, um, West Coast are just kicking along nicely without doing too much, so I'm going to say no. Well, if they were playing... I know the, the derby is not too far away, but if they were playing this week, I, I don't know, I reckon I'd be fancying the, the Dockers. Not yet. Close. Okay. Neil? I think I agree that not quite, but, but they're certainly closing the gap. Uh, we are here for footytips.com.au, where you can tip with family and friends uh, and co-workers, if you, if you like, on... I'm done with tipping this year, I think. <laughs> Whereabouts are you at the moment? I don't know. <laughs> I've had another shock. I keep forgetting. Well, Thursday night threw me this time. I just didn't tip excuses. on Thursday. There's always got excuses. Yeah, a lot of excuses get rolled out. Well, Thursdays didn't bother you when you were leading after two rounds. <laughs> no, it definitely didn't. No, it definitely didn't. But, um, Neil, I know that you've got some interesting stats. We, we talked about it in the opener, but uh, tipping by profession. Yeah, we've broken down the database and looked at the top 10 average tippers by profession, which is Short, interesting. Surely journalists up to any, any ideas on what might be number one? <laughs> I'm fellas? bringing the average down, Jake. Don't <laughs> kid yourself. Uh, no, please enlighten us. Should I start at number one or should I start from... The Build the suspense. Build the suspense. Okay. Equal ninth, healthcare workers slash medical professionals and IT administrators. 
uh, eight and moving upwards to eighth managers, tradies, scientists, engineers, people involved in finance or bankers, okay. teachers. Hold num- on. Teachers are third. Teachers are third. Right. And then we go to retired people who are retired. Although oh, they've got a lot of time to, exactly. to look at the stats. That's right. <laughs> So the number one profession this season is journalist. Drum roll, drum roll, accountants. Accountants. They know the numbers. <laughs> the bean counters. They've got all the time in the Champion world with the, the water cooler and <laughs> talking about footy. Well, that's interesting. Who's who's the worst? What what profession? Uh, we've actually got um, uh, journo's uh, right down the bottom, twenty oh. fourth. <laughs> you are bringing the average down. My and day. interestingly, another section of society I thought would maybe have more time on their hands. Maybe I'm being a bit what unfair. Footy players, students. Students are last on our list. Well, maybe so they're doing their homework instead. Maybe they are. So maybe that's, oh, that's interesting. They're last on the list. Are they? <laughs> yeah, they are. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we have run out of time, unfortunately. We do need to go, but make sure you do uh, subscribe to the podcast and make sure you uh, give us a review because we do read those and we like to see what you guys think. Uh, you can reach out to us on at Footy Tips on Twitter. Uh, but in the meantime, we will speak to you in the next one. Thanks for listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL podcast.